Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from partisan talking points, and instead we concentrate on research, the expertise of our guests, to help us frame policy debates and and develop solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from local municipal concerns to state and even national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Joe Moravchek. And I'm Chris Chapp. Today on Public Policy This Week, we are going to discuss the 2023 Minnesota legislative session. Our guest is journalist Walker Ornstein. Walker covers state government and politics for MinPost with a focus on issues impacting greater Minnesota. He has been with MinPost since 2018, and before that, Walker covered the legislature in Washington State uh, for several news outlets, including the News Tribune in Tacoma. Walker Ornstein, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Joe and I are in studio in downtown Northfield, Minnesota this morning, and Walker is joining us via Zoom. Uh, Walker, where are you at today? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I am at our MinPost headquarters in, in Minneapolis. We're over in Northeast Minneapolis joining me today. Good morning, Walker, and welcome to the program. Where are you originally from? Where did you go to college for your undergraduate education? And what was your inspiration for a career in journalism? Yeah, I'm from St. Paul. I grew up in Highland Park, um, but I went to college at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, I stayed out there for a few years afterwards, covering the legislature, as you guys mentioned. Um, my original inspiration for journalism was I started out kind of in sports journalism. I was covering high school hockey here in Minnesota uh, for the Minnesota Hockey Hub for a little while, and I was just really interested in that. And then when I went to college, I decided that I wanted to actually attend the sports games as a fan and have a little bit of a, of a fun time rather than being at work all the time. So I started to branch out. And as I did that, I got more and more interested in, in the legislature and government politics. And so that for me uh, really became my passion. And uh, I had a, an internship out there that really sparked my interest in, in legislative journalism. I have two high school, well, two college hockey players now, but when they were in high school, Minnesota Hockey Hub was reading probably three times a week. We'd read articles from the Hockey Hub. Um, That's awesome. I loved it there. Uh, So tell us a little bit about MinPost, uh, the mission for the news website, how long it's been around, how it's funded, and, again, your role there for MinPost. Yeah, so MinPost, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan news outlet. Um, We've been around now, gosh, I think it's at least 15 years uh, and yeah, how it's funded is sort of a mix between individual donations. You know, we have, you know, one-time donations and just regular, you know, kind of, uh, it's not, it's, it's paywall free. There are no subscribers, but you can kind of become a regular member. Um, but we also get grants. Um, you know, my beat in particular is grant funded. Um, and all of that sort of financial information is on our website. We're super transparent about it. You can see who gives and at what level. Um, and yeah, our mission is is just simply to do nonprofit 
uh, you know, independent journalism. You know, we've always focused on the legislature and politics pretty heavily. We have two reporters at the state legislature, uh, Peter Callahan and I. Uh, Peter Callahan also covers a lot of stuff um, that I don't always write about. So he's got a lot of great things you can check out after this. And then, you know, we've got people covering you know, City Hall and, and I do some environmental work. And we've got people covering public safety and all sorts of issues. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a a smaller news outlet that punches above its weight. Yeah, thanks, Walker. It's it is uh, a great source, and I direct students there all the time. the The no paywall thing um, is is really huge. So, uh, and you do some great reporting there, um, Walker. We want to treat this as a conversation. This conversation sort of is a legislative recap um, and go through some of the big bills that passed this session. But before doing so, we're hoping you might give us a sense of the scope of the legislative session, which. And regardless of your politics, many are hailing as just incredibly productive. They passed a lot of big bills. Um, do you share this view? And and if so, how did the planets sort of align for the Walls administration and the DFL this session, um, especially given relatively thin DFL majorities? Yeah, I think lawmakers in both parties would say that it was a productive session. You know, Democrats would say that in a in a positive manner and Republicans would say it in a negative manner, but I don't think there's any arguing with the idea that they just simply passed a lot of stuff this year. Um, we have had divided government here in Minnesota for, you know, a while and, and under divided government, they're always negotiating on what they can agree on. Um, and in the end, they sort of usually do end up setting, or they always do end up setting a state budget, but the kind of policy goals that they can reach on, in either party are just limited. And so here with full you know, democratic power and a record $17.5 billion surplus, you know, they really had the doors open for them to just do a lot of work. Um, and so as far as the, you know, the kind of the planets aligning, I will say a few things on that is, you know, Democrats really, when they came into the session, one of their big themes was they wanted the era of gridlock to be over. Um, and so that was a big thing for them. They wanted their hallmark to be you know, productivity. They wanted to see, they wanted people to see them doing a lot of stuff and take that as a sign of, of, of it being a good thing to have one party control over government. Um, but there were definitely some things working in their favor on that. You know, I will just say new majorities tend to be more cohesive than majorities mm -hmm. that have been there for a while. And so uh, one reason for that is just there's lots of pent up demand. So you've been working on stuff behind the scenes for a long time if you're Democrats and you all generally agree on what is, you know, almost for them low hanging fruit, you know. And, and so when you get to the legislative session, there's a lot of stuff they want to kind of usher through. And after you've been there for a while, you know, you sort of run out of the things that you all agree on. Um, and so it becomes harder. So right when you take power is sort of a moment that you can do a lot of things. But also, you know, uh, newer lawmakers are not a, a so, I guess, you know, set in their ways or set in their, you know, ideological zones. They tend to be a bit more collaborative, um, I have found over the years. Um, a couple other things that are made it easier for Democrats is, frankly, they were just more ideologically aligned than they have been in the past. Mm. And when I say that, it's, it's um, you know, back in, you know, 2012, and for a couple of years there, when Democrats had a full trifecta, there were a lot more rural Democrats and mm. those rural Democrats disagreed with a lot of metro area Democrats on a lot of issues, you know, everything from taxing and spending to gun regulations or abortion. 
things like that. But, you know, over the last, you know, I guess eight years or so, we've really seen this accelerating trend of geographic polarization where Republicans are just winning substantially more ground in, in rural areas and Democrats in the suburbs. So like, for example, in the House, Democrats lost like five seats in mm-hmm. greater Minnesota, but they picked up, you know, enough seats to keep their exact same majority, mostly winning through the suburbs. And so they're trading sort of rural lawmakers for metro area lawmakers, and it makes for a much more aligned bunch. And so for them, it just kind of made it an easier route. Um, you know, it also helped just to have a ton of money, you know, $17.5 billion solves a lot of problems. And I don't mean to suggest this in a totally transactional way, but, you know, if you're, it, it definitely makes negotiating easier. You know, if you, if you can get, you know, some money for your favorite program or in the infrastructure bill for a project that you really like, maybe you're fighting less over, you know, policy X, Y, and Z, because there's just kind of enough to go around that everyone can bring home a little bit of bacon. Um, so it's not to suggest that there wasn't some fighting behind the scenes. There was definitely some DFL inter-party fighting. Um, they mostly kept it kind of quiet and limited, but there's just so much that they already agreed on that they were able to sort of flood the zone with all that sort of stuff and, you know, let the fighting over some of the other issues kind of wait till perhaps next legislative session and beyond. Thanks. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, we had the, uh, the state demographer on public policy this week. Uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, and and the greater Minnesota urban um, area um, distinction, I think, is probably going to continue to be even more salient um, in the years to come. So it's it's interesting that that, in some ways, is sort of responsible for a more cohesive majority than um, than than say you know master of the Senate sort of stuff, you know, legislative um, uh, expertise. Um, Moving to some specific things. So one of the big bills this session protected abortion rights in the state. This was a pretty clear reaction to uh, the Dobbs ruling uh, at the Supreme Court, uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Minnesota already had a state court ruling protecting abortion in the state. Um, And so some critics thought that this move was maybe more symbolic. Wondering if you could react to this and talk just a little bit about what the abortion bill actually does. Yeah, so you're exactly right. You know, we had a, a state Supreme Court ruling. It's called Dovey Gomez in 1995 that sort of established abortion rights in Minnesota. Um, and so when, you know, the federal Supreme Court overturned Roe, it didn't really have an immediate impact on Minnesota. Um, however, Democrats felt they had a mandate to do something on abortion. And in fact, to do a lot on abortion, because really, I mean, frankly, it's probably the number one reason that they won a trifecta um, this year, um, especially in those suburban seats that we were talking about. Like that was just a huge issue for them. Um, and so what they wanted to do was, you know, establish a right in state law as essentially a backstop or to submit that state Supreme Court ruling. And, and they argued for that. Um, one, just to help clear up any confusion, you know, here's where the legislature stands. And, and two, because they, they argued, you know, just like Roe, a Supreme Court ruling could theoretically be overturned. You know, it's unlikely in Minnesota, given sort of like who has been governor, um, Democrats uh, appointing Supreme Court justices, um, and the fact that our elections for Supreme Court justices are rarely really contested. So that was sort of an 
unlikely outcome, but certainly possible. Mm -hmm. And so they felt like a state law would be another layer of protection for abortion rights. Um, and so, yeah, the main bill that they passed, it's, it's short, it's broad in scope, though. You know, it says everyone has a fundamental right to make autonomous decisions about their own reproductive health. Um, you know, it explicitly bans local governments from regulating reproductive health care, you know, things like that. Um, and it, it really did bring a lot of outcry from Republicans. You know, it's a complicated topic. They felt like it, this and some of the other abortion policies that the press passed um, open the door for abortions later in pregnancy, you know, second, late second, even third trimester abortions, what they argued, um, you know, essentially clearing any previous limitations off the books here in Minnesota. Um, and we did have a few limits on the books. Most of it was struck down by courts in, in recent years and in long past years when Democrats did get rid of some of that stuff. Um, they also argued, you know, these later term abortions, uh, abortions later in pregnancy are, are really rare, which they are. The data backs that up. It's really rare. And they happen mostly when pregnancies are wanted. It's some sort of a, an emergency situation, um, that sort of stuff. Um, however, that there are states in which, you know, there are some controversial abortions later in pregnancy in states like Colorado, where they do not have these types of limits um, later in pregnancy. So, yeah, it was it was a complicated and emotional debate there at the legislature. But Democrats really felt like, you know, hey, we were voted into office to do this stuff to protect access to abortion. Um, and so we're going to do just that. Um, and I guess just one last little thing I will say is that the polling on this is a bit complicated. Mm -hmm. What it's worth, Republicans also argued that is, you know, there is very little appetite for a total ban on abortion. So when it comes to, you know, should abortion be illegal in, say, the second trimester? You know, we had polling uh, in the wake of the Dobbs ruling that found like a plurality. I believe it was about 46 percent thought it should be illegal in the second trimester. So complicated issue. But nevertheless, Democrats wrote into office on a on an abortion you know, platform, essentially as a pr protecting access to abortion platform. Another sort of signature piece of legislation this session was the, the carbon free by 2040 bill. Um, my understanding is this doesn't mean that Minnesota will be carbon neutral, but um, instead that utilities are going to offer um, this as an option, um, carbon free energy. Could you walk us through the mechanics of the legislation a little bit um, and just sort of in practical terms, what are some of the differences that our listeners might expect to see in the coming years? So, yeah, I mean, it's important to note this is only for the electric sector, right? So it's not, you know, transportation or agriculture or anything. It's really one sector of Minnesota's economy. And it's a sector of Minnesota's economy that has become less carbon intensive, more so than a lot of other sec sectors over the past few years. You know, the electric sector has actually made quite a bit of progress in reducing its emissions. Um, nevertheless, uh, they did pass this law. It does essentially require a carbon-free electric grid by 2040. That is kind of the basics of it. Um, there are two standards in the bill. One is a renewable power standard, which expands kind of a current law. And it, it says, you know, utilities will have to source their power for about 55% renewables by 2035. But then there's also the carbon-free standard. It ramps up over time. So, for instance, most of the major utilities will have to be 80% carbon-free by 2030, eventually to 100% by 2040. You know, it's a little bit complicated again. You know, not every renewable resource is considered carbon-free. Not every carbon-free resource is mm -hmm. considered new, uh, uh, renewable. Um, for instance, like nuclear power, 
it's considered carbon free under the bill, but not renewable. Um, and there are also exceptions in the bill. You know, uh, utilities can buy what's called renewable energy credits or RECs as they're usually referred to. Mm -hmm. um, you can kind of buy these in lieu of actually hitting your carbon free goals. Um, and the upshot of it is that you're essentially paying for green energy elsewhere to sort of offset what you're doing. Um, but then there's also what most people around the capital call an off-ramp um, for utilities. If it would be way too expensive, if it would um, threaten the reliability of the electric grid, you can sort of apply to regulators on our public utilities commission um, for an off-ramp to say, basically, I can't get, I can't get to hundred uh, percent. We need to sort of take a step aside and do something else. So there are a couple um, you know, ways that Minnesota may not perfectly hit 100% by carbon by uh, 2040. And in, in terms of a practical difference, you know, it's just kind of hard to predict, you know, we'll have to see where utilities go, how often they're using these off ramps, stuff like that. Um, you know, it could impact power rates. Absolutely. You know, utilities will be able to recover some costs of, of kind of going to this, you know, carbon free area. Um, you, they may be filing for exceptions, which you could see in the news. You know, they might be doing programs for electric vehicles and things like that that are tied into this in a way. So for the average consumer, I mean, you may not tell the difference when you flip on your light switch where that power is coming from. But you may see it again in things like your power rates or just generally at reading about what your utilities are doing and where their energy mix comes from. When you talked about off ramps, that reminds me of one of the big sort of objections to the bill, which is. Um, Republicans were very concerned about sort of rolling blackouts and is this going to threaten the energy supply in the state? Could you could you talk a little bit about those those objections and where that stands? Yeah, the Republican nickname for the bill at the Capitol was the blackout bill. Um, and so, yeah, you know, as they debated this at the legislature, that was essentially the main objection from Republicans. Um, they felt like the off ramps wouldn't be easy enough to get that Democrats and the Public Utilities Commission are sort of eager to move Minnesota towards this carbon-free future at such a rapid clip that they won't pay enough attention or care to sort of the reliability of the grid. And so, especially for small municipal and cooperative utilities, they felt like it would lead to higher costs from you know building this new infrastructure, buying credits, or that they won't even really be able to do that well enough and that they won't get granted an off-ramp, so they'll kind of be in a tough spot. Um, you know, there are issues with getting enough carbon-free power and transmission to supply and, and move all that carbon-free power. The, the regional, you know, electric grid operator is called MISO, um, has issued, you know, essentially some warnings about like kind of uh, the future of what we call baseload power, which is like, um, you know, things that run when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, mm. nuclear or coal or natural gas or some things like that. But I will just say that um, this all is regulated by the Public Utilities Commission. I spoke to the vice chairman of that commission um, when this bill, after this bill passed, and he said, look, like nobody wants the lights to go out. We don't want rolling blackouts. We're going to be keeping a close eye on this, obviously. Um, and he thinks that it is possible. Um, and so I think we'll just have to we'll have to get there when we get there. It's hard to know. I, I don't think anyone is anticipating a blackout in the next year or two. Um, but, you know, as we get closer to 100 um, percent, these things, you know, the, the technology is still a bit theoretical for reaching that 100 percent platform. So as we get closer to this, 
um, it may be a more significant question, but it's a little ways out for now. What, what did the utilities themselves think about it? Yeah, it depends on the utility. Sure. You know, um, I would say, yes, they did. They did lobby on this bill quite a bit and Democrats gave them some concessions, like for instance, smaller municipal and cooperative utilities that again had some concerns about like, Hey, we're not, mm. we're not big money XL. We don't have the, uh, uh, the ability to do this as easily as a utility like that. They, they were given some, they, like, for example, they have to be only 60% carbon free by 2030 rather than 80%. Um, so they have a little bit of flexibility. Other utilities got a few concessions here and there. Um, I would say like XL energy, you know, Minnesota power, our biggest utilities, generally speaking, got to a point where they felt like they could stomach this. Um, and, you know, they were not, you know, huge objectors at the Capitol once it got to sort of a final point. Um, those smaller utilities, however, did have some serious concerns. You know, the Municipal Utilities Association in Minnesota felt like, you know, 80% carbon free was doable. The, uh, you know, uh, government relations director over there said, you know, after that, things get very murky and very expensive. Mm. Um, and they've got a few few specific concerns, but generally speaking, it's just, they feel like it's going to be really expensive. So um, I will say, you know, someone like Excel Energy, they already had their own goals, sort of Minnesota Power for, for carbon-free energy by 2050 or before this. And so they're just like, well, okay, we got to bump it up a decade. But, you know, Excel has the, has the, the ability to get there in some ways faster because they have a large fleet of nuclear power already mm. Uh, running mm -hmm. that nobody else has in Minnesota. So that puts them kind of a step forward because it's a, it's a carbon free energy source that does provide that kind of round the clock consistent power. You know, Minnesota power has a lot of large hydro power um, that they can use in a similar way. So they also have some ability to get there, but yeah, for some of the smaller utilities, I think it'll be an interesting path forward. Walker, let's change gears and talk about, rebate checks and child tax credits. Uh, during his 2022 campaign, the governor told us all that Minnesota families would receive $2,000 rebate checks and eligible individuals $1,000 checks. The post-election reality is $520 checks for joint filers and $260 checks for individuals. That's quite a difference the statements made during a campaign versus what taxpayers can actually expect. Why the difference? Yeah, well, well it is definitely a big difference. Uh, one reason for the difference is that when Walls got to the legislature, it turned out Democrats had about a zillion different priorities for this money. You know, uh, He can propose his own budget, and he did, that had bigger Walls checks as they were once deemed or rebates, one-time rebates. Um, However, House DFLers had their own plans. Senate DFLers had their own plans. They had a host of other stuff they wanted to spend the money on. And don't get me wrong, the state had a big enough budget surplus that they could have done this bigger size check, but it would have cost you know four billion bucks or somewhere around there. Right. Um, so it's a it's a larger slice of that seventeen point five billion dollar surplus that Democrats just had a lot of plans for. Um, Democrats also, generally speaking, wanted to focus on people with lower incomes. And I know that the eventual Walls checks do have income limits, um, but they felt sort of like this broad-based system. They'd rather 
focus on things like, as you mentioned, their child tax credit, which is really aimed more at low income families, you know, things like that, uh, just generally, you know, pumping money into areas, uh, subsidies and other areas of the budget that they felt like would help lower income families, things like that. You know, and, and Democrats wanted to spend big on education. They wanted to spend big on the environment. They wanted to spend big on on lots of different areas. And so I think that's kind of where Walls ran into the problem there. And, uh, you know, what they did approve was about a $1.15 billion in this two-year budget, which is still a pretty big thing. I, if I remember correctly, I think it was the biggest expenditure in the tax bill. So it was the biggest sort of one-time uh, tax uh, program. Um, however, still Republicans felt like it was awfully small considering the scope of the budget. Um, they felt like, you know, hey, we've got all this money. Why not give it back? You know, you, you campaign on this. And Democrats argued people will get back to surplus just in a variety of different ways, you know, whether it's the child tax credit or, or the rebate check or, you know, money that helps your child care business stay open or this, that or the other thing. So, um, yeah, it was a definitely a significant debate, but there is no doubt that uh, Walls promised or at least campaigned on or that eventually ended up arriving. Do eligible Minnesota citizens have to do anything, for example, file an application to receive a rebate check or a checks, a tax, uh, a child tax credit? And then what is the timetable to receive a, a rebate check? Yeah, for the rebates, um, my understanding is you don't have to submit anything. Um, there's a good story on the Star Tribune about this that I was looking up this morning. Um, that folks can go look for. But uh, if you file your taxes with the state, give them your already have given them your direct banking information, the state will send it to your account as a direct deposit. Um, but like if you have to update that banking info, um, the state's expected to create like an online portal um, where you can do that. Uh, the rebates are expected to go out starting in early fall. Um, so it should be coming there. And with the child tax credit, you know, it's a, it's a it's a credit just as similar to lots of other tax credits with regard to, you know, actually filing your taxes. But I will say that one is also fully refundable. So like if you have zero tax liability, for instance, you still get a positive credit. You still get money for that, even if you don't have any tax liability. You're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm your host, Chris Chap. And my co-host is Joe Moravchik. Our guest today is journalist Walker Ornstein, and we are discussing the 2023 Minnesota legislative session. Walker, in our second segment, let's first talk about the new laws that are going to affect Minnesota gun owners. And then let's transition to the new Minnesota laws regarding marijuana. First guns. Governor Walls signed into law a red flag law which allows law enforcement authorities to ask the courts for extreme risk protection orders to temporarily take guns away from people deemed to be an imminent threat to others or themselves. In your coverage of the bill and now law this session, why did proponents find this important and necessary to codify? What are the concerns that opponents of the law have? And, and how do law enforcement officials generally view the law? perhaps mixed. Yeah. So there's a several reasons why this became a top priority for Democrats. Um, one of them I will say is just politics in that they were considering what they could actually pass 
you know, they do have narrow majorities. They do have a few rural Democrats who are not so excited about major gun regulations. Like over in the House, Representative Dave Lizlegard is from Aurora, Iron Ridge Democrat, and he's, you know, endorsed by the NRA. And, uh, you know, Grant Housechild over in the Senate, where Democrats only had a one vote advantage, um, also said kind of heading into the session, like, hey, I'm not favorable towards lots of major gun control is what he told me on the campaign trail. And so they were kind of searching for like what might actually pass. And one of the reasons that they settled on a red flag law is one, they're pretty popular around the country. I think uh, I think now 20 or more states have them. Uh, including conservatives, some conservative states, Florida, you know, Indiana. Um, generally speaking, they poll pretty darn well. Um, broadly supported in Minnesota, our polls have found. Um, so there's kind of you know that aspect to it. And, and also, Democrats will argue that it's aimed at kind of a person, you know, someone in a mental health crisis, not the actual physical gun itself. And so, for instance, like if you're trying to ban a type of gun, you know, a type of semi-automatic weapon, you know, that could potentially take away that type of gun from everybody, not just, you know, people who are using it in a in a violent way. Um, and so Republicans really push back against that. A lot of Democrats really push back against that. So Democrats would argue that this red flag thing was, was more aimed at like the specific person. You know what I mean? So it's a bit more limited in that regard. Um However, Democrats will also argue that there is research, and I have seen some research that suggests that these red flag laws actually do work um, if actually used, which is a problem. Some states where they have them, they're rarely filed for, essentially, and so that's kind of a problem. Um, but they also, you know, they, they work to limit not just mass shootings, which is obviously at the forefront of a lot of people's minds right now, but also suicides. Um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness was in favor of this legislation, um, saying it, you know, it, it can take a gun away from someone even for a short period of time can do a lot to help prevent someone from taking their own life. So there are kind of multiple uses for it. Um, as for opponents who argue against it, I would say, you know, there's several different arguments against it, including sort of contesting some of the research or looking at suicide rates, you know, at a broader level. Um, the biggest argument from gun rights organizations against this is that it could threaten due process rights in their right. view. And so there's kind of two tiers to this law. Um, you know, you can ask for what's in a, known as an emergency extreme risk order. And in that circumstance, um, it, it would be like a 14 day seizure of a gun. And, you know, say I'm filing it for a family member, I would go to the court and ask and say, you know, my family member, you know, is a threat to themselves or others. And the court would take that into account, but they would not involve my family member. So it's called an ex parte process. And so the court will weigh the evidence that's before them and then issue a ruling. And then, um, you know, that gun could essentially be taken away from someone who never knew they were in the court system in the first place. And so opponents will say, like, you know, it's not fair. You should be able to present your side of the story. What if uh, somebody who, you know, uh, a jealous ex-spouse or an angry ex-spouse, is it often used as an example, will file one of these to, you know, strip your gun away before hunting season um, just to get back at you, you know, something like that. That's just sort of a, a hypothetical that people will throw out. Um, it's worth noting that there are, of course, misdemeanor penalties for sort of false accusations or bad faith petitions under this law. 
Um, so they, you know, Democrats try to put in some protections against this. Um, there is also, of course, a longer extreme risk order. Um, it, you know, can be up to a year or even more. Um, and in that case, there is a proceeding where the person who's being, you know, is the subject of the extreme risk order is actually in the court. So that's kind of a longer thing. But the, the emergency order has been a big point of contention. You know, there are people across the political spectrum that have worried about, you know, uh, just an expansion of government power into, you know, your rights. The ACLU talked about, you know, uh, worries about this being sort of a pretext to have no-knock warrant intrusions into someone's home to to take a gun. And, and they're worried about that after the Amir Locke killing, you know, things like that. So um, there, there was some, I guess, if not bipartisan, but sort of across the spectrum concerned with this legislation. Uh, just briefly, when it comes to police, you know, law enforcement's a bit split on it. Uh, the police chiefs association was at a lot of the gun control press conferences in favor of, of this type of legislation. The Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association, which represents like frontline officers, um, does back the concept. They had a few concerns. Generally, police are a little bit wary of having to go in and take these guns because they worry about their own safety. Right. Um, but they do see them as a tool. You know, usually law enforcement um, interacts with people who they feel like, you know, they know they would like to file these petitions against, essentially. And so um, they are often in favor of them. Uh, the Sheriff's Association is neutral, and there are, are a lot of individual, or at least some individual sheriffs who have major reservations about the legislation on the due process question, just generally um, as supporters of Second Amendment rights, especially in greater Minnesota. But, uh, you know, again, the association itself is neutral. Related to red flag laws is the expansion of background checks. Explain for our listeners how the new universal background check law in Minnesota works and what the objective of the law is. Yeah, so it extends background check requirements to private transfers, and these are just things that don't face all the requirements of like a traditional gun seller, like if you just go to a sort of a, a classic gun store. Um, and, you know, Democrats will argue that it's it's just, you know, these types of transfers, you know, me giving a gun to a neighbor um, should be subject to such a background check, you know, even if I know my neighbor well, I may not know that he has a criminal history or a history of violence or something like that. And so that's essentially the concern that that Democrats raise. Um, there are some exemptions like transfers between media family members uh, at shooting ranges uh, while actively hunting. Um, but uh, opponents of this will say it essentially criminalizes common common behavior among gun owners, you know, kind of like the general trading and swapping of guns sort of thing. Um, even for instance, like, you know, when it's hunting, like if I gave someone a gun like four days ahead of time to go hunt later on, you know, that necessarily wouldn't be allowed. Um, it's more of the active, you know, if we're both in the deer stand sort of situation. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was also contentious. It's also something Democrats have wanted to pass for many years and Republicans and gun rights groups have generally been against. So those were the two main gun regulations that uh, were passed this year. During this 2023 legislative session, there were suggestions to limit gun magazine capacity, that is the amount of rounds in a magazine, raise the age for semi-automatic firearm ownership, create gun owner registries, and also enhance gun storage laws. 
the proposal to have required Minnesotans to store a gun unloaded with a locking device separate from ammunition. This all sounds like a, a Second Amendment showdown in court. How serious were the discussions of these ideas, and what prevented these ideas from being advanced in bills? The majority, for the majority of what you mentioned, there was never really any serious discussion yeah. of this passing. You know, before the legislative session, I remember even talking to the chair of the House Public Safety Committee, uh, who told me, you know, they had really narrowed the scope of their agenda even at the time. And I think it was just purely political realities. And this is the house where there is a more liberal, uh, I guess, a more progressive streak and a bigger majority. And so even they were like, you know, we're not really taking on that sort of stuff, which are, I will note, things that Governor Walls generally wanted. Um, and so I think just they just felt like they didn't have big enough majorities. They didn't have enough support to really look at stuff like that. Um, you know, the gun storage bill, that did come up early and was gaining a little traction it had advanced a little bit especially in the house um however i will say that there was a campaign against it from a bunch of sheriffs tons and tons of sheriffs came out against that um, opposing it uh worrying that you know the kind of gun storage regulations would essentially make it possible to use your gun in sort of a self-defense situation was one one concern with the law right. supporters of it felt like that that was overblown as a critique but nevertheless uh you know at least one senator, Senator Grant House Child from Urban Town up in northeastern Minnesota, said, you know, that's a no. Um, he was just against that flat out. He, I don't think, was the only one. Um, but even with one vote against in the Senate, uh, it was just not going to pass. So even though that gained a little traction early, just went nowhere. So, yeah, pretty interesting year for, for Democrats on that. But it, it was interesting to see, I will say, like throughout the session, Governor Walls, uh, at every sort of rally in favor of gun regulations, I feel like the, the types of policies he would mention, the list of them that he wanted would get smaller and smaller as the legislative session went on to the point where it was like, OK, we want the red flags and we want the background checks bill. And then that was it. Uh, and then they claimed victory on that, which was certainly a, two things that they have been wanting to pass for a long, long time. But, yeah, as you mentioned, sort of like things like raising the age for semi-automatic weapons just was not ever truly on the table. Walker, um, I know this isn't exactly your beat, but but maybe you could comment on it. Uh, Minnesota is now the 23rd state to legalize recreational cannabis for adults 21 and older, regulating cultivation, manufacturer sale of cannabis. Um, could you maybe just give us a, a, a quick overview of some of the the pros and cons of legalized cannabis and, and sort of where the debate stands now? Absolutely. And I'll just plug my colleague, Peter Callahan, who reports on this just in extreme depth. It's just really wonderful stuff. And you can find his stuff on MidPost. Um, you know, he's dived into a bunch of the different issues on this and just really does great work. Um, I will say the bill just was a, it was a huge piece of policy. It went through tons and tons and tons of committees and they worked on it. And they shaped it, they changed it, they tweaked it, they massaged it. They did everything to it over the course of the entire legislative session. Um, you know, from supporters, you know, they'll argue one, it's just simply popular. You know, people have this option in other states. Um, and, you know, when you do poll it, it generally polls well. You know, there's even that entire, uh, two entire legalized marijuana parties that have run and caused some political problems for Democrats. Um, but, you know, beyond that, you know, Democrats argue it will be safer to have a legal market you know, it will reduce crime that's sort of associated with the black market. Um, it will, 
you know, be more regulated in a way that, you know, there will be more health and safety checks on what you're buying. Um, so if people are doing it anyway, they'd rather it, you know, run through to make sure that there's no dangerous substances in there, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, Democrats obviously will bring up the inequitable impact of marijuana enforcement, especially on people of color over the last, you know, forever, essentially. Um, and so they have a lot of reasons that they feel like it'd be a good thing. It's worth noting it's not really motivated by a huge amount of tax income that's never really been, um, I guess, part of the question here. The, the tax income is, is a bit small. Um, and so it's not like it's bringing in just a ton of money for the state or anything. For them, it was more of just a, you know, in a, in opposition to the prohibition. Um, you know, Republicans, most of them, but not all of them, opposed it. So did, you know, trucking industry, some traffic safety watchdog groups, uh, police groups, addiction advocates, some religious groups. So there were some opponents of it, certainly at the legislature. Um, and they argued, you know, it's still an unhealthy substance. You know, it can hurt brain development um, and young people. Uh, there's kind of a lack of reliable roadside testing. So that's kind of an open question. Um, you know, people driving under the influence of it. How do you sort of handle that? Um, you know, there are folks who wanted to control the potency of the marijuana, you know, put other limits or they worried, for instance, I think the trucking industry worried about, uh, you know, it's it's still illegal for them, especially I think if you're crossing state lines, essentially. And if you sent the message in Minnesota that it was legal, that they worried about maybe impairment on the job or even just you know being able to hire um, more or less. So, yeah, definitely a lot of arguments for and against that played out at the legislature this year. And Democrats were able to. Um, pass it. And it wasn't, like I said, a total party line vote. They got a few Republicans who have sided with them on, on this issue. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm your host, Joe Moravchik. My, ho- my co-host is Chris Chap. Our guest is journalist Walker Orenstein. We are discussing the 2023 Minnesota Legislative Session. Walker, so Northfield is a college town, as you know, St. Olaf and Carleton call Northfield home. And so there's a lot of interest here in college tuition legislation that passed. Um, and while there's a lot of qualifiers here, my understanding is that it will essentially eliminate tuition uh, for students in need. Um, this is a bold bill. And, and in a lot of ways, it's sort of an alternative policy model to legislation that might you know, for example, just be aimed at reducing tuition costs across the board. So it's it's really a different type of, of policy. Could you talk us through the mechanics um, and the rationale for the legislation a little bit? Yeah, by the way, both those schools are private, right? Right. And that, so, yeah, this. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to have a follow up about that if you could if you could speculate at all. But yeah. Certainly, yeah, and just worth noting, it doesn't apply to private college tuition, so uh, you know that's a, a a limitation there. But yeah, so essentially, what it is is uh, tuition at public colleges would be free to those whose families earn less than eighty thousand dollars a year, um, starting in the 2024-2025 academic year. Um, they call it the North Star Promise. It's about one hundred seventeen million dollars. Um, in, you know, one, every year, essentially. Um, and I guess it would be about $50 million annually, you know, after the setup. Um, I will say that it is, it is like a last dollar program is usually how they refer to it. Um, and what that means is, you know, it covers any remaining tuition costs left after state and federal grants. Um, 
scholarships from those schools. So once you kind of go through all that and see how much financial aid essentially you have, then the state can come in and, and cover the last portion of it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's not like the state will cover all, all of the entire tuition just on its own. Um, though there are debates about, you know, you know, will schools offer the same amount of, uh, you know, scholarships, things like that. Obviously there's mm -hmm. been some healthy debates about this sort of stuff. Um, I will just say as for the rationale, you know, Democrats have always argued for in favor of more affordability um, for these kinds of college programs. But I know that, um, especially in the Minnesota state system, enrollment has really been declining. Mm -hmm. um, and so Democrats have been trying to think of ways that they can sort of boost that system. You know, you've seen some cuts to academic programs and it really it's just it's been a problem across all, a lot of the campuses, um, even some speculation you know, about potentially schools combining or whatever there's just lots of lots of worries about this issue and so one of the things that democrats came up with was this program in hopes of you know especially essentially sparking people to go to you know think cloud state over somewhere else because they're really going to get their entire tuition covered and the the number i saw is is about fifteen thousand students uh in its first year would be would be affected by this is that does that sound about right yeah, I, I've got no reason to question that. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. It seems right to me. Uh, any sense of how this might affect private colleges in the state? I'm just, I have a vested interest here. Um, and I'm just, I'm curious if private colleges were ever part of the discussion or if this was just aimed at state schools, community colleges um, from the, from the get-go. That is a good question. It's not something that I covered uh, in extreme depth, I will mm -hmm. say. So I apologize for that. But um, I, all I know is is that uh, the Democrats in charge really are mostly laser focused on on their you know public schools, especially because of the enrollment question. And so I think for them that's a big thing. You know, if if a private school is facing enrollment declines, they may have concerns about that too. But for the state systems, you know, especially since the state oversees them, um, I think that was a primary concern for them. Another issue that affects us here in Northfield and cities across the state, is the $2.6 billion bonding infrastructure bill. This bill is interesting, in part because it required bipartisan support for passage at a time where there appears to be little cooperation, and in part because for some time the details of it were in the dark. Could you walk us through the bill's passage? It sounds like there was some, some uh, deal brokering required on the part of leadership from both parties. Yeah, this was a roller coaster of a saga, really, at the legislature this year. You know, we we had gone two two full years without a, a bonding bill, and so that's you know government borrowing for uh, construction projects. You know, it's everything from you know roads and bridges, ice rinks, uh, you know college buildings, parks and trails. You know, just all sorts of public infrastructure, um, and it is a interesting political game because. General obligation bonds require a 60% supermajority in the House and Senate. And so even if you have full Democratic control of both the House and the Senate, the Republican minority does get some say here. And it's really their only point of leverage. Like when we look at the entire scope of the process here, um, essentially, this is the only thing that Republicans can really truly use to sort of, you know, try and win some of their priorities. Um, and so what, you know, in past years when it was Republicans who controlled the Senate, Democrats who controlled the House, 
It was more like, for instance, House Republicans who would negotiate for some of their priorities in the minority, um, but also generally just speaking, there was various disagreements that led to us not having any bonding bill. And so this year we came into it, um, you know, Democrats and others just saying there's a lot of unmet need. We've gone uh, what was a historically long time, really, without a bonding bill. Um, and so they were really wanting to kind of push something through on this. Uh, House Republicans actually did agree to just pass just a kind of traditional bonding bill um, paired with some cash. Uh, they felt like kind of the the hostage taking negotiations game hadn't really worked for them in years past, um, you know, saying, well, I'll pass a bonding bill if the governor relinquishes his emergency powers during the pandemic, for instance, that did not work out for them. Um, and so they, they kind of said, all right, let's pass one over in the Senate. However, Republicans said, we won't pass one until you Democrats agree to more tax cuts. And that took the shape of a couple of different proposals, but eventually they had wanted the, the Democrats to fully eliminate the state tax on social security benefits, which is something that a lot of Democrats had campaigned on, but then there were a lot of leading Democrats like the governor who thought that wasn't good policy. They felt like it would be a giveaway to the wealthy. So you had this kind of standoff and it was this really interesting standoff. You know, the house had already passed it, which gives Democrats some leverage. And there were a lot of, Republicans from rural areas who were getting really pressured by their local officials to pass something because, you know, in smaller cities that need huge infrastructure, like for instance, a wastewater, you know, plant, a, wa a clean water drinking plant. Um, these are these huge multi-million dollar costs that they can't really, you know, spread, spread amongst their small tax base. Like if, you know, if your city of a couple thousand, you need, you know, 10 million or something, you know, it's really a tall task. And so they really wanted this state help. And so you had, you know, Democrats calling the mayor of Owatonna or, or a fair to then go ahead and call their legislator and say, you know, vote for this. Uh, and it really became this big political fight. And I will just say one, one wrinkle to this whole complicated debate is that there was so much cash that Democrats had this year that they could threaten just to pass only cash. They would say, we'll do no borrowing, no borrowing whatsoever, we'll just use cash. Um, and that cash does not require a 60% supermajority. Mm -hmm. And so they not only said, we'll use all, all cash, but we won't really include very many projects in Republican districts. Um, and they wanted to arm twist Republicans into agreeing to a bonding bill because it would help them spend more money on their other priorities. You know, they didn't really want to use all cash necessarily because they wanted to spend, you know, reserve some of that surplus for other things. Uh, they also had other reasons, other financial reasons. But so you have this sort of kind of multi-dimensional negotiation going on. Um, in the end, Republicans did kind of give way on their request for the social security tax cuts. They felt like Democrats wouldn't do anything with that. But they did push for an extra $300 million in money for nursing homes, struggling nursing homes. Um, they felt like the DFL budget plans did not include nearly enough money to help that sort of long-term care system. And so eventually they negotiated for that extra money. And so in the end, they passed a $1.5 billion bonding bill, so sort of the traditional bonding bill, and then a $1.1 billion cash bill. It's a big, historically large $2.58 billion package comes together really on the last day of session 
And you're right, like we didn't even get the details. Like I was kind of reading through the list of what was actually in the bill as it was literally passing off the Senate floor. Mm. So this is a $2.58 billion package. Much of it was contained in the other proposals that had floated around the legislature, but there was plenty that was new because there had more money to spend all of a sudden with the extra borrowing. And so, you know, this is probably the single biggest expenditure of the entire legislative session and we were finding out the details as they voted on it so not exactly a you know a, a great example of transparency but it, it did come together at the last minute um, and that's why uh, you know I don't think the lawmakers were necessarily intentionally trying to hide everything in it but it nevertheless we didn't really get a look at it till the end is, is broadband a part of this infrastructure bill or perhaps that's part of another bill? 200,000 rural Minnesotans are without high-speed internet. Did money get appropriated for broadband in rural areas? It did. It is not part of this infrastructure package. It passed separately. The lawmakers approved $100 million in new spending on their grant program that subsidizes the construction of high-speed internet infrastructure. So it's essentially laying fiber in the ground, more or less, is, is the vast majority of it. So that was a separate piece of it, but the $100 million was a pretty darn large amount for the legislature over the years. It's not as much as the state, as especially the Walls administration and, and broadband advocates wanted. It will not get us to the goal of everyone having uh, internet at the speeds that the state you know, has determined are adequate. However, we are getting you know, more than $500 million from federal government through uh, I think that one is through the infrastructure bill, uh, the federal infrastructure bill. Um, it's hard for me to keep all of these sources of money straight, but one of the big federal programs that gives us just a ton of money that still combined with this won't get us to where we need to go, but we will be substantially closer. And that, that 500 plus million dollars is just way more than uh, Minnesota has ever gotten in one chunk. So there will be significant progress on broadband, partially because of the state, but largely because of the feds. There's also local government aid that comes from the legislature to all cities throughout the state. It looks like Northfield is set for about $3.4 million this year. This does not get the big headlines, but aid to local governments is important to greater Minnesota. What can cities use the local government aid for? Walk us through what was accomplished this session regarding local government aid. Yeah, so uh, lawmakers approved $80 million a year for local government aid on top of what they already spent. Um, usually, you know, the state spent about $564 million a year on LGA. And it's just worth noting that that mostly flows, I think about two-thirds flows to cities in greater Minnesota. Um, so it really does help people outside of the Seven County Metro. Um, it's used on basic services. You know, it's really used on pretty much anything. I, I think um, if I remember... You know, the city of St. Joseph was like almost like a third or something of their city budget came from local government aid, just sort of a huge chunk. So this is a big deal for a lot of city governments. You know, it can be used on anything from the parks to, you know, a fire truck or or whatever a city needs are. And and lawmakers were especially interested in in this um, because it can help limit local property taxes, um, which they see as especially you know not not progressive source of revenue in general, and just generally they didn't want people to have to deal with taxes. That's good um, we had such a large surplus. Um, so this was a significant hike. And also, you know, we have had a few 
you know, we have had increase to local government aid under the Walls administration. Um, however, a lot of cities were arguing that inflation has gone up so quickly that, you know, they're already kind of back under where they were essentially <laughs> a few years later um, because, you know, everything is just more expensive. Um, it's also worth noting, in addition to the local government aid, lawmakers passed $300 million in public safety aid, hmm. which is doled out kind of in a similar way. It's one-time money. Uh, cities, counties, tribes can use it for any type of public safety initiative. But again, it's one-time money, so they might be better off, say, buying body cameras or uh, a fire truck than they are in, like hiring a police officer because that might be an ongoing cost. But you could do sort of a bonus program for new hires or something. But that was quite a lot of money and really a new thing this year was that public safety aid. So paired with the local government aid, uh, quite a bit of money going to, to cities and counties throughout the state. Walker, you've talked a lot about legislation that got passed, uh, that became that became law. What about stuff that didn't get passed? Were there any major disappointments for Democrats or stuff that didn't see the light of day? Um, could you walk us through that? Yeah, it's interesting. At the start of the session, Democrats put up a big list, like a big checkboard in the in the House DFL caucus room. And as they would pass stuff, they would, you know, check off. We did mm-hmm. we did carbon free energy. We did, you know, child tax credit, so on and so forth. Um, and after the session, they tweeted out pictures of this big checkboard and they had every item checked off wow. their list. You know what I mean? And so uh, the House Speaker, Melissa Hortman, told us, she said, you know, what I wanted us to do was under promise and over deliver. And she said, we did kind of clear the decks. Um, and so they really did accomplish most of what they set out to do. Um, there are, of course, things they will fight about. In some ways, I think next year could be really interesting because it's like, okay, well, now what, right? Um, and all the things they agreed on are out of the way, and some of the things that are thornier debates will will rise again. Um, a couple things that disappointed some Democrats were, you know, uh, the guns policy. Maybe they didn't go as far as some wanted. That could come up again. There was a bill that the governor vetoed that would have had some you know, worker protections and salary stuff for Uber drivers, um, you know, Lyft drivers. Um, and Uber had, had said, you know, they were going to limit service or make it much more expensive. And so that eventually got vetoed. There'll be kind of a task force to kind of look at the issue. Um, there was a, a bill that nurses really wanted, nurses union really wanted, that would have created these like staffing committees that are made up partially of nurses to help determine, you know, kind of the, the ratio between patients and staff. Um, that was the one where Mayo Clinic came in and they said, you know, we will pull a bunch of state investment if you pass this bill. Um, and so initially Democrats just exempted Mayo out of it. But then, you know, there was a segment of Democrats who said, well, if you're, you know, we, we find it not great if we're just going to exempt Mayo um, and leave everybody else in. And then there were a segment of Democrats who said, well, you know, if it's bad for Mayo, it's bad for everybody, essentially. So there was kind of no agreement on that. So they did pass a little bit um, to help the nurses, aimed at helping the nurses, but they didn't pass that full bill. So that could come up next year. Um, so, yeah, there are things that they will want to revisit. You know, over in the environmental world, there were big debates over, you know, regulating 
pesticide treated seeds um, and other aspects of you know environmental regulation that they will kind of debate I guess in the future certainly um, but they you know they spent the surplus so the money question will be not so much on the table it will be mostly a policy question so there will be stuff to debate um, you know one other thing that I guess will just come to mind is you know it's very possible that they debate some sort of constitutional amendment um, to put more specifically in our constitution protections for abortion um, versus in state law. And another possible thing uh, could, well, I could just leave it there. But anyway, there'll be some, some, some debates for sure. 2024 will be around the corner before we know it. Um, could you give us a little preview of some of the issues that might come up in, in the, uh, in the upcoming election? Yeah. So 2024, the House will be up, but not um, the Senate. And so that will be just limited to the to the House. But, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Republicans run on. Uh, their obvious messages will be um, when we had a seventeen point five billion dollar surplus. Democrats raised a lot of taxes, sure. which they did, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't give back in Republicans view enough of it. Um, you know, there were a lot of taxes, gas tax, you know, metro area sales tax, uh, some various things. So that will be a huge overriding theme. You know, Republicans will have to try and win back some suburban seats. So it'll be interesting, their message on abortion. You know, uh, they will probably run on that in some of the very few greater Minnesota rural or rural adjacent districts that are left, like in Winona, where Representative Gene Pulaski is, although Gene Pulaski is, uh, does not generally favor abortion access and voted against some of the legislation uh, for Democrats. So that, that could be an interesting thing. They'll, I'm sure they'll still run on public safety issues. Um, you know, uh, Democrats passing some criminal justice bills that um, could result in earlier release for certain offenders, you know, those kinds of things. So they will, they will go with their tough on crime message again, but uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, I think Democrats, uh, the, the turf that they're fighting over still remains favorable to them because they have lost most of what they can possibly lose in greater Minnesota. So again, if they're fighting over abortion in, in uh, you know, Stillwater, they're probably all right with that. You know what I mean? Um, that's an all right terrain for them. So it, it'll be a really interesting question of where exactly Republicans, you know, go after Democrats and, and on what issues. Well, this has been another great and interesting conversation, but this is where we must end our program today. Walker Ornstein, Men Post, thank you for being a part of public policy this week. Yeah, Walker, thank you so much um, for, for coming in and sharing your knowledge and expertise. And I am certain you are going to uh, pull some readership to Men Post, um, no doubt. where our, our listeners will, will come in and look up your stories. Could you uh, just tell us again where to, uh, where to read more of your work? Yeah, you can just go to the MinPost homepage. It's just M-I-N-N-P-O-S-T dot com. Yeah, we publish a few stories a day, five, six times a week. And yeah, come find us. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and 95.1 FM each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. And if you didn't catch the program live, you can pull up podcasts of each program on the KYMN website or any of your favorite podcast services. Just look for our Public Policy This Week logo. 
Be sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week. Our guest is Dr. James Densley, an expert on mass shootings and criminal gangs. Next week, we're going to focus on gangs. Have a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.